This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue and the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. This week, is Boris Johnson running on empty, or is a weak opposition giving him the momentum he needs? Plus, what's behind China's latest crackdown on cryptocurrency? And finally, are the Marvel movies good, actually? First up, as the Tories head to Manchester for party conference in the middle of the country's fuel crisis, Kate Andrews asks in her cover story this week if Boris Johnson's government has run out of ideas as well as petrol. Katie Balls also writes in the magazine that the opposition seems unable to take advantage of the government's failures. Katie and Kate join me now to assess the state of both parties. Kate, you start your piece with a depressingly long list of crises hammering the country right now. But despite all of them, the Prime Minister's position in the polls doesn't seem to be too affected. Why do you think that is? Well, as Katie's excellent piece in the magazine explains this week, the opposition is so woeful and so busy fighting with itself that there isn't any major opposition in the UK right now. Certainly not not in England. I suppose you could argue that Nicola Sturgeon continues to give Boris Johnson a headache for a very different reason. But the piece is highlighting that it won't necessarily take a strong Labour Party to do the government real damage, because when you have a gas shortage, when people are queuing for petrol, these are issues that essentially affect everybody, you know, every voter, regardless of whether or not they lean left or lean right is going to feel this. And I spoke to a few Tory MPs who in the piece are just really worried about the state of the party because they don't think it will take a strong opposition for people to realize that the party's in decline. And it's a lack of ideas coming from the top, but also a lack of willingness to, to listen to new ideas. Somehow, build back better and leveling up have come to define insecurity and crisis after crisis. And unless the prime minister is willing to empower his cabinet to come up with some real solutions to these problems, he's only going to find himself in a more difficult state. And I, I, you know, I would say that that doesn't mean he's going anywhere, but it does mean life's only going to get tougher. Katie, a competent opposition would be able to take advantage of this moment of government crisis and incompetence. Why isn't the Labour Party using this opportunity? I think it's a question lots of people have been asking this week in Brighton. I think particularly memorably, one diplomat turned to me and just, not even in a loaded way, just said, why didn't Keir Starmer start conference at a petrol station in Brighton? You could have turned up, you could have stood, trying to fill up people's cars. Yes, it'd be a stunt, but it's a stunt that would get you a lot of press. If you look at the papers this week, Labour has barely made the front pages most days. The leader's speech has a little bit. And the things that have been leading the news are not the things that I think, I think Keir Starmer's team had envisaged when they were first thinking about his first in-person conference. Things like Angela Rayner suggesting that you can call Tory scum. So I think the lack of focus on fuel has been a point of confusion at Labour conference. And that's partly because people are saying, well, yes, Keir Starmer wants to use this to sort out its own party. And that could be something which proves a smart play in, in the medium term. But it also is feeding into this fear amongst Labour MPs that they have a leader who's not very reactive, who doesn't want to think on his feet and doesn't want to take risks. And 
it would have meant, uh, you know, a last minute pivot to try and focus on the crisis around the UK. But I do think if you think about what most voters are thinking about, they're thinking about the fact of whether or not they can get to work, not where Keir Starmer stands on various these issues, which feel very navel gazing on party rules. Kate, you write about how before the pandemic, uh, the government seemed to have a lack of resilience, no plan B, in other words. Is there any sign, do you think, that the government is learning its lesson? Uh, no, I I really don't think there is. And I think the NHS, uh, which I discuss in the piece, is maybe one of the, the best examples of this. So they have pledged to bring capacity up to 110%. But it was almost a point of pride before COVID that every February we had a winter crisis, that the NHS was operating at close to 100% capacity. The positive spin on that was, oh, look, we're efficient. But I think it's, it's quite clear that a, a lot of these gaping holes in institutions and public policy. It's not really by design. It's not because we're desperate to be efficient. It's just because nobody's really thought about what might happen if if something goes wrong. You know, a conservative government brought in energy price caps, stealing that policy from Ed Miliband, who came up with it in 2013. A Boris Johnson government who, you know, he claims to understand the market. He has people around him who certainly do, should have been the first thinking, gosh, pandemic or no pandemic, uh, but certainly with COVID, the global economy is going to spring back. We've got months to plan for that. What's going to happen to energy prices? Obviously, demand's going to outstrip supply for a while. Maybe we should roll this policy back. Maybe we should be trying to get a, a bigger gas supply in the UK. Nothing. Nada. Complete lack of preparation. It was an issue before COVID. It's a much bigger issue now. As Katie says, they don't have the political pressure breathing down their necks because Labour's busy fighting with its Self. But, you know, voters, people going about their lives are really starting to feel these consequences now, whether it is they can't fill up their car, their energy bills are about to go up, whether they're one of the 5.6 million people now waiting for an NHS treatment. And, you know, the Prime Minister is extremely lucky that the opposition is so woeful, but the public is not because they deserve a government that might have like a radical idea amongst them um, and come up with something that could solve some of these issues. Katie, Kate mentioned just then how the Tory government essentially stole the policy of price caps from Ed Miliband. Is that part of the reason Labour can't seem to get a foothold at the moment? Because uh, the Tories keep stealing all their old policies. Yeah, I think there are a few things going on. So one is clearly the internal warfare. And I think to give Keir Starmer a little bit of credit, we have had a situation where he won a few bets on that. It is now harder for the left of the party to threaten to deselect MPs. That means you will have a bolder leadership and MPs will talk about issues. But then the second issue is the fact that we have seen a realignment in politics where the Tories are moving further to the centre ground. Um, you saw particularly in the 2019 election where Boris Johnson, in an interview to The Spectator, to me, and James Forsyth said that he was never comfortable with the Cameron era austerity. And I think that makes him a harder opponent. I do think, however, when you look at certain policies they've taken or the new language on spending, Labour could have an easier job quite soon because for some of the reasons Kate has outlined, we are heading to a a difficult autumn in terms of cost of living. Now, the fuel crisis, when you speak to figures in government, is almost lower down the priority list. It feels very acute right now, but they think that's something that can be fixed fairly quickly. Whereas actually, you look at the wider problem in terms of staff shortages, supply chains, if you look at the energy prices, the fact the price cap is 
may stay in place, but it's going to keep going up, um, you know, when they have these um, rounds of it. And then you have universal credit, um, the uplift being cut, furloughs coming to an end. All these things together mean that people are going to find it a lot more expensive to get by. And I think that that is an issue which will make it harder for the Tories to say, well, now we're suddenly high spend because lots of people just won't feel like they are. So I think it's made it more difficult for Labour, but a few factors should make it easier for them. The question is, can Keir Starmer take that opportunity? Because my impression is if we do suddenly get a poll, then, you know, it's for once Labour plus six. I think people are going to think, oh, that's because Keir Starmer is very inspiring. I think it's going to be people think things have got so bad at this point that finally it's having some kickback on the Tories. So from listening to Keir Starmer's speech at conference yesterday, Katie, I mean, do you get the impression he'll be able to get his troops in line, get the party in line, or will that be the job of the next leader? Well, I think you often hear shadow cabinet members talking privately about almost two-term strategy. And clearly at conference you've heard, no, Labour wants to win power in the next election. I do think we have to think back to 2017 where everyone thought the Tories were going to win this huge three-figure majority and then they lost the Tory majority. Things can change pretty quickly. But I, I think that there is a question on Keir Starmer in the sense that I think it is by far the most likely scenario that he leads them into the next election. Something quite drastic would have to change. Um, but if they don't win power, does he get close enough that people think he is the person to keep carrying them on? Or do you have a different figure take over at that point? And it was interesting covering all these fringes at Labour conference. I mean, Andy Burnham did not get a slot in the main hall, I think much to his dismay, um, the Metro Mayor for Greater Manchester. But he did manage to make up for the time he didn't get to spend there by signing up to 11 fringes, wow. um, which is a very <laughs> packed schedule. And speaking, so he's seen as, you know, one to one to watch, but he has to get back into Parliament where he'd want to do it, which is more complicated. And then people like Lisa Nandy, Angela Rayner. But I do think the fact we're already at that leadership speculation point shows you that people are having second thoughts about how long Keir Starmer will be in post. Kate, many of Boris's critics have been saying for years that eventually the public would see through his chaotic approach to politics and punish him or, or the Tories in the polls. And that has been proven wrong time and time again. I mean, could you be underestimating the Prime Minister's skill at reinventing himself just when you think that he's finished? So I wouldn't underestimate Boris Johnson's ability to sell himself and his likability. I wouldn't underestimate his ability to keep going. I have very little doubt, similar to Katie's point on Labour, something quite drastic would have to happen for Boris Johnson not to be leading the Tories into the next election. I mean, there are a lot of Tory MPs that are still quite quiet about his failures because they see him as the sole reason that they currently have their jobs. That you know, It was Boris Johnson, not the Conservative Party, that led to that 80-seat majority in December 2019. The difficulty for the Prime Minister, though, is even if he's not at risk tomorrow or even in the next five years, it's not just Labour that's the problem, it's all the economic forces around him. If inflation goes up to 4%, as the Bank of England now thinks it's going to, and stays there until at least the middle of next year, if it's not transitory and the cost of living just becomes significantly higher and energy bills are rising, and as Katie pointed out, all the support is coming to an end, people are going to start to get quite upset. And now that he's in the ultimate position of power, which, you know, in previous years, very powerful in London, powerful as an MP, but not prime minister, you could very often pass the buck to somebody else. Boris can't do that now. And the fact that his plan B, when things go wrong, seems to be to call in the army, would suggest that this is a prime minister who really is at the moment out of ideas. Uh, We have the army processing HGV licenses now. This is not the role of the army. This means something has gone very, very badly wrong. He's got time to fix it. 
right? We're not going into an election yet. He's got time to bring in new and creative ideas. He's even got time to cut taxes. But the trajectory at the moment seems to be to continue to move to the left economically, to steal ideas from labor, to regenerate old ideas from a decade ago, for example, to fix social care. And I'm just not convinced that that's going to be all that compelling. It doesn't mean he's going to lose the next election. It doesn't mean he's going to disappear. But it does mean that it's probably downhill from here. The question is how quickly he goes downhill. Katie, at the end of her piece, Kate asked the rhetorical question, where are the big ideas to help the nation recover? And she's referring to the government's lack of vision there. But is the Labour Party similarly lacking in big or creative ideas? Yeah, I mean, I think Keir Starmer in his leader speech was talking about how the Tory government doesn't have big ideas. But there's a certain bewilderment in the sense that Keir Starmer, no one is quite sure what he stands for. I mean, it's almost become... Every time you hear someone say, oh, I don't know what he stands for, it becomes such a repetitive you know, question or theme. I think people switch off a bit. So I apologise for doing that on this podcast. Um, <laughs> but I mean, it's obviously easy to talk about big ideas. I think we could go around this table and be like, what's your big idea? I'm sure Kay would actually have quite a lot. Um, but, <laughs> Never had you know, an opinion in my life. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think we have a situation where Keir Starmer's plan for the Labour Party to me and this is what aides said to me around the time that he started which was and lots of those aides have now changed had a shift in team but they said to me you know oppositions don't win elections governments lose them Mm -hmm. and I think if you think about that phrase it's much easier to understand what Keir Starmer is doing it's not so much about coming up with this bold vision now clearly they want to say he's got a bold vision but um, listeners are welcome to write and let us know what that is but I think it's less about that and it's more about becoming a palatable alternative, something that Jeremy Corbyn, I think, was not uh, for various reasons and suggesting um, through standing up to the left a bit, through getting through those heckles, that actually this isn't, uh, you know, the Labour of the past few years. This is someone that you can go to if you're unhappy with the Tory party and hoping at that point the Tories implode. And I, I think that is far more what Keir Starmer is about than, um, you know, things like this 12,000 word essay, which you get to the end of. And to me, lots of people on all sides of politics could agree with. I guess it goes back to that point, not that Boris Johnson or his government are going anywhere anytime soon. But if things only get harder for him at what point does uh do those difficulties actually start to implode and i think that's you know that's the question on everybody's minds really no one knows when that will come thank you katie and thank you kate next up ian williams writes in this week's spectator that the ccp's latest move to criminalize anyone dealing in cryptocurrency is to clear the decks for china's new state-sanctioned digital currency he joins me now along with george magnus an associate at Oxford's China Centre and the author of Red Flags, Why Xi's China is in Jeopardy. Ian, in your piece, you write about China's latest crackdown on cryptocurrencies, a blanket ban on all crypto transactions and mining. Can you explain what's uh, going on? Well, it's taken them a while to get to this point, And perhaps surprisingly, given this is China, they've been quite a leader in things crypto, both in terms of crypto mining, which is the process by which um, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and others are created. And they have have vast mining complexes, which uh, are spread out over warehouses in remote parts of China, in Mongolia, Sichuan. 
and at one point were mining something like 76% of the world's cryptocurrencies. That's now back under half because of earlier attempts to crack down. And in fact, cryptocurrency trading in China still accounts for half the, the world total almost. So unusually for a currency which was initially developed by libertarians as something which would enable transactions which were beyond the reach of central authorities, China played quite a big role in the development of this. I mean, a lot of it was for pure speculation, but nevertheless, it was a big player. And I think China tried to, the, the party was nibbling at the edges, trying to restrict it. When it banned cryptocurrency trading, it merely forced it offshore using foreign platforms, which they're now trying to outlaw. They reduced the number of miners, but still they are huge. And of course, this is a vast energy hungry business accounting for more energy globally than is used by the likes of Switzerland or Austria or other nation states. So I think for a party which is so obsessed with control and centralization, it was only a matter of time before they moved rather more vigorously against this industry. Yes. And George, do you agree with Ian that this crypto ban is a way for the CCP to enhance state control? And and particularly, actually, as Ian talks in the piece about the digital UN and, and how the crypto ban is paving the way for the CCP to roll out this new digital currency to further uh, state control and, and surveillance. Do you agree with that analysis? Yeah, I, I certainly concur. I mean, that China, I mean, just looking back very briefly... I mean, it was it was certainly an ideal kind of breeding ground for for cryptocurrencies. I mean, it's digitally, it's very well advanced. It's the world leader in mobile payments. Uh, it was conceived, or you know, they conceived as a way of of uh, if you look at the sort of the performance of Alipay and WeChat, which are you know probably about ninety ninety five percent of electronic payments in China. You can see how, in a way, this is kind of a, a kind of a monster that kind of ran out of control. And I think Ian is absolutely on the button. I mean, China, certainly now, I mean, if not, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, uh, is very much about control. It's not about allowing private and decentralized, you know, networks of uh, cryptocurrency trading to take place. It definitely, you know, wants to basically bring this under <clears throat> the sort of dominance of the state, like pretty much everything else. The digital yuan is, I think, I mean, I don't think we should necessarily conflate cryptocurrencies with the digital yuan, because the digital yuan or the e-yuan, as it's known, uh, is not really a cryptocurrency in the same sense as Bitcoin or any of the others are. Uh, it's issued and backed by the central bank, the People's Bank of China, distributed to banks who can then provide e one to their customers. But it's very much under the auspices and the surveillance of the central bank. So if you want to basically trade, you know, cryptocurrencies because it's anonymous and, you know, the transactions are hidden from view, the e one is not for you. <laughs> well, George, you've written before about how China plans to go it alone. Uh, and focus on self-reliance. I mean, is this digital currency, uh, the state-sanctioned digital currency, uh, an important part of the plan since it, it wouldn't be linked to the, the dollar-dominated global financial system? Is that part of the plan? I, I think the Chinese government, I think, I, think, I think it thinks that's correct, you know, that actually the digital yuan is a way of 
going its own route, getting other uh, central banks and other kind of governments to basically embrace it. So, for example, there's an organization uh, that goes by the acronym of SWIFT, uh, which has about 11,000 banks in it. And they basically are responsible for clearing all the transactions in currency transactions that take place every day. Um, so it's it's a pretty big and important um, outfit or organization in which the yuan basically accounts for barely one and a half percent of transactions. The dollar is dominant. So the Chinese, in conjunction with the Russians, have set up their own kind of version of SWIFT to do their own clearing. And the Chinese certainly would like the e yuan or the digital yuan to become kind of a, an alternative to the dollar over time. I think this is a fantasy, to be honest. I think because I think, you know, big currencies in the world, reserve currencies become what they are uh, because of trust, not because of greater technology. But for the time being, at least, that's certainly a view which is propagated quite a lot. Well, Ian, George mentioned just then about uh, how China and Russia are joining forces with, with some of this digital currency in order to dodge Western sanctions. And that's something you mentioned in your piece as well. I mean, what do you think the repercussions of this could be? Well, I think uh, George is right that the uh, the digital currency is the very antithesis of, of a decentralized cryptocurrency. But you can see why it's very attractive for states such as China and Russia and other authoritarian regimes, um, both in terms of dodging Western sanctions, um, but also in terms of the degree of control, because this is a, a surveillance state's dream, because when you have control, you have vision, visibility over every transaction, it is the ultimate form of surveillance. You, you, you can see what everybody's paying, what they're buying, who they're dealing with. It takes surveillance up to the, up to the next level. And although there has been, uh, I, I think, China has a lot of control over its tech giants, whether it's Alibaba or Tencent, the companies that currently control the e-payment systems. I think they will quickly become subsumed under this new EUN because the EUN will, everybody will have to deal with it. It'll be centrally, central bank will create it. Payments terminals will be compulsory. And it's easy to see how these other payment schemes will be subsumed under this one centralised authority. So from the point of view of an authoritarian government, and especially one which has embraced and is underpinned by surveillance to the extent that Xi Jinping's China is, this is very much an, an important tool and almost an unprecedented one for a surveillance state. I'd just like to echo that, if I may, because I think that's, um, that's a very important point. Uh, I think I mentioned before that, that Alipay and WeChat account for about um, 90, 95% of electronic payments in China. And I think that the E1 is a, you know, it clearly is a state-directed uh, kind of program to wrest control, in a way, of um, electronic payments from those providers. Um, and it kind of fits very much into the broader campaign which is going on. I think everybody's been sort of looking at in various ways, certainly this year, well, certainly since perhaps the end of, of 2020, in which the government is basically leaning increasingly heavily 
from a regulatory and compliance standpoint on private firms and in this particular case, obviously, in terms of private payments mechanisms. I mean, it's obviously, it's a, it's a more efficient way of um, running a payment system. It kind of brings the unbanked into the, the realms of, you know, the economy, so to speak, to the extent that they are unbanked. But um, we shouldn't fool ourselves that this is something that's for the benefit of vested sort of people. This is for the benefit of the Chinese government, particularly. Do you worry, though, George, just finally, that there's a risk of America and perhaps other Western countries getting left behind? I mean, if China is ploughing ahead with the development of a centralised digital currency, could not be said that it's determining the financial infrastructure of the future? And shouldn't America be rising to that challenge? Yeah, I'm... Ian may be better qualified to answer that question. I mean, I don't really know how far they're getting now. I mean, I think the way I think about this is that I'm not sure that the EU1, even though there will be governments in the world uh, that will be very willing participants with China to develop this product and use it, I don't think it's going to prove to be very popular. And I think that, if anything, I think the way in which we are likely to follow the Chinese experience, so to speak, is in the area of regulation. But what advantage China will get, other than, you know, from its own political perspective in terms of surveillance, in in kind of being a world leader in the sort of digital currency, I'm not really sure. As I said before, you know, trust, deep capital markets, convertibility of your financial system, having kind of open and transparent sort of payment systems. These are things that actually make for popular, you know, reserve currencies and popular currencies. But I, I don't really see E1 or no E1. I don't think the yuan is going to be that much more important than the Canadian dollar or sterling for a very, very long time. Yeah, I think that's an important point there, George, as well, because... When we talk about digital currencies and other central banks, our own here in the UK, in the US, there are many projects looking at e-currencies, but they're all coming up against quite profound ethical issues about oversight, about control, about regulation. And of course, if we look to China and the development of so many other aspects of the surveillance state, it's ploughed forward without any concern for any of those elements. And, and I think it's almost a living, breathing example of what happens when you adopt a lot of these technologies without any real oversight, without any real control, and really with the primary purpose of underpinning the power of the party. And I think in many ways, looking at what China's doing will have a sobering effect on those central banks looking to develop their own e-currencies because you know there are profound ethical questions here which have never really been that big an issue for Xi Jinping but will have to be confronted I think by central banks in, in more democratic societies. Ian and George thank you very much. And finally the Marvel films. Love them or hate them, these superhero blockbusters have dominated the box office for more than a decade and have redefined pop culture. But are they any good? They have not received particularly positive reviews in The Spectator over the years, but Rosie Millard jumped to their defence in the magazine's lead arts feature this week. She joins me now to try to convince me to give Marvel a chance. So, uh, Rosie, the the new Bond film is, of course, out this week. And in your piece, you compare the Marvel films to the Bond films and you conclude that the Marvel films have uh, more going for them than Bond. 
And I think a lot of our spectator readers and listeners might disagree with you there. So can you can you explain why you prefer the, the Marvel films? I think that everyone's really delighted to see No Time to Die. But I suspect many people will think, blimey, this is a blast from the past. We have waited, I think it's 20 months for this film to reemerge. Daniel Craig actually turns up as Bond in Casino Royale quite a few years ago. So the, the whole kind of Daniel Craig as Bond seems quite dated. And I'm going to compare it to the other great franchise, which is dominating our screens at the moment, big and small, which is Marvel, which just seems more on it. It seems more contemporary. And it seems that even though some of the Marvel movies have been mothballed, like No Time to Die, it doesn't seem that they've been away because Marvel has managed through, I would argue, better use of character and better use of plot and its actual platforms to pivot rather successfully during lockdown and to appear like it never went away again. Whereas I think Bond now seems quite dated. Yes, well, you used the word dominate just then. I think something I thought your piece got across very well uh, was the way in which the Marvel superhero films almost have this sort of monopoly of popular entertainment now. The the big budget television shows on Disney+, Plus, as well as the many, many, many films. And when I was reading in your piece about the sheer quantity of stuff... I, it actually made me feel a bit dizzy. I mean, could could it not be argued? Isn't this all just too much? You know, when is an, enough enough with these franchises? I think that for anyone who's never seen a Marvel movie, they might think, "Oh, blimey, here's another superhero film. This is very boring." But actually, if you go venture into the cinema and watch one of those films, you will be amazed because they're written so well and they're acted with such conviction and they're acted by such good performers that actually what you get are very universal truths, a lot of comedy, a lot of amazing cinematic brilliance, and you're going to get the same wrestling with issues that you would, I would argue, in an art house movie. You get complex discussions about free will versus determinism, about how to use your special skills, about what happens when you become over the hill, about what happens when you lose someone you love. All these big, big human complex concerns are conveyed via enormous characters, via great comedy, via action. I think it's a quite brilliant formula and it's delivered through excellence of direction where if you look at the films very carefully, they actually look a bit like comic strips in the heightened colour and the light. I don't know how they do it, but it just looks like a comic strip, sort of. And they do it by very, very good acting. You know, look at the cast. You have Robert Downey Jr., you have Tom Holland, you have Scarlett Johansson, you have Paul Bettany, you have Benedict Cumberbatch, you have some of the really very, very, very adroit actors in Hollywood and UK and elsewhere at the moment, delivering their craft to, to Marvel. They're not phoning it in and they're not doing it with a sort of dull kind of like, oh my gosh, here is a dull action hero movie. They believe in it. You know, Benedict Cumberbatch believes in being Doctor Strange. I mean, I don't disagree that they have some very good actors in them, these films, but I think I'm rather with Martin Scorsese here when he said that the reason he thinks superhero films 
aren't cinema is because they don't bring you something unexpected because there's very little at risk. I mean, don't you think there's some some truth to that? I mean, because you, you could you say in your piece that what's good about these films is that everything is possible, but couldn't it be said that if everything is possible, then then nothing's really at stake? You know, a character can die in one film, and that doesn't stop the studio from uh, you know making a whole film about that character or a whole spin-off TV series. You know, a year later. Yep, yep, the multiverse. The multiverse can do anything and the multiverse can say, okay, this character isn't dead. Let's have a look at now what what is happening to them or let's have a look at what's happened to them in the past. I think that that is an argument, but I think that the films are actually work very well on their own. So when you enter a film, you sort of enter the world, you suspend disbelief and you think, okay, he is meant to have died or she's meant to have died, but maybe that didn't happen. And and let's see what happens now if they didn't die. Let's see what happens when Ant-Man goes back to see his daughter who he believes has died. And I defy anyone to watch that scene where he greets his daughter on the doorstep dry-eyed because imagine if you lost your child and imagine if, if you suddenly saw your child after five years, what would the first thing you say to them be? And he says, you're so big, you know, you've grown. <laughs> and it's just, and because Paul Rudd is doing it so well, he's so convincing, it's very, very moving. And I would say a lot more exciting and interesting than Martin Scorsese films, which are so grandiose and pompous. You know, I mean, frankly, I don't know, did he direct Gangs of New York? It's very boring. Um, <laughs> five hours, I think. Um, and also very violent. And I don't like violent films. And... Avengers films are not they're not really violent they are they are comic strip and I and I quite like that lightness of touch there's a lot of humor in them as well a lot of kind of wit and I think that in fact your very own reviewer James Walton has said that you know the new Bond film which I haven't seen yet I'm going to see shortly has lost the wit that that made Bond so delightful I think quite a lot of that wit has been transplanted to Marvel and also the Marvel television spin-offs which you mentioned have enormous budgets I mean one single episode of Falcon and Winter Soldier which is a spin-off basically Avengers one episode 25 million dollars you know so they can throw a lot of money at that and what that's meant is that they can kind of you know the trouble about Bond is that there's just Bond and he can't change who he is whereas the Avengers and the, the Marvel whole world, including Guardians of the Galaxy and all this stuff, they've got about 40 characters, each of which they could, has their own timeline or multiple timelines and their own hinterland and their own world. And they can play at this, uh, you know, so if someone like Robert Downey Jr. decides to leave and say, right, I'm fed up with being Iron Man, goodbye. Or Chris Evans decides not to be Captain America anymore, sob, sob. Mind you, turned up again in Knives Out, so hurrah. (laughs) You know, they can say, okay, we're going to say goodbye to these characters in as painful and as tear-jerking a way possible. But we're going to build up the smaller characters and we're going to give them a whole world of their own, like Loki, played hilariously by Tom Hiddleston. But Bond can't do that because Bond only has one character. Until Don't unless you... I've missed it, and there's a Money Penny spin-off coming your way soon. <laughs> well, speaking of the spin-off thing, I mean, um, I would argue one of the things that's come out of Marvel's cinematic supremacy. I mean, you mentioned the word formula earlier, and I think something that I think is 
very bad right now in Hollywood is the way that many studios are trying to copy that formula. I mean, everything now is a sequel, a prequel, a remake. It's part of some big, vast, ambitious, multi-film cinematic universe. Um, Isn't Marvel to blame somewhat for this trend of studios giving up on original standalone blockbuster films? Well, I think that's market forces. And I think that is saying, right, you've come and see one film, Kung Fu Panda, we are now going to trap you to see the next two, which are truly dreadful, in my view. And they are just cynical, kind of like, let's run the same thing again. I would say, I think Marvel is cleverer than that. Because they say, oh, you know, you may have people like your very own film critic, who greets every single next Marvel film with the same, like, hey-ho, this is boring. But if you actually go and see them, you'll realise that they are their own discrete uh, experience themselves. Also, I would say that the artistic gang who make them have got enough heft to being in a Marvel film, arguably, Taika Waititi and Scarlett Johansson go off, they're both in Marvel films, they go off and make Jojo Rabbit, you know, a very interesting film, an art house movie. And it's quite interesting that the, the, the number of Marvel actors who are then propelled to work in other interesting genres. So... I think that it's not Marvel's fault. The, the distributors and the market, you know, is possibly risk averse, wants to to keep on kind of flogging the golden goose because the, the stakes are so high, because costs are so high, because arguably audiences are divided with multiple platforms and multiple things to choose from. So once they've found something that works... Let's do it again. I mean, you could argue, you could say the same thing for Cameron Mackintosh. Yeah, why doesn't he do new musicals? Why does he put on Les Mis all around the world? Well, he's, he's running a business. And also, he why shouldn't people see Hamilton a million times if they want to? You know, it's not stopping any other theatre production from coming on. Well, you may say it is, but I would argue not. Well, finally, Rosie, what would you say to someone like me who hasn't seen a Marvel film in years? I mean, which is the one I should watch? Well, that is a good question, because, of course, the worry is that if you are like you, someone who's sort of like fallen off uh, being a believer, or if you are a Marvel virgin, you know, the anxiety then is, can you jump on the moving bandwagon that is Marvel without thinking I'm completely lost? I would argue you could. You won't enjoy it as much as me and my son who go and sit there and think, oh, here, here's, here's, here's Mysterion again or whatever. I would say go and see the next Spider-Man movie coming out in December. Or what you could do is engage in an entire weekend and watch the four Avengers movies. That's, I'll, I'll take, I, I, if I have an afternoon to spare or perhaps a whole day to spare, um, I'll take you up in a recommendation. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, why not pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read all the pieces discussed? If you become a subscriber today, you can get 10 weeks of the magazine delivered to your door, plus a bottle of Pims worth £25 for just £10. To take up the deal, go to spectator.co.uk slash Pims. I've been William Moore. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.